Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you all are, and welcome to this roundtable discussion of transhumanism in literature. Very shortly, I will introduce our special guests, but first, I just want to welcome all of you, give you some announcements, and sort of let you know what we're doing here, and invite you to other events at Signum University. So this event is one in the Signum Symposium series, and we do various types of programming here on this series. We bring in our faculty at Signum to interview them about their research. We have thesis theater events where our graduating MA candidates talk about their research and their recent thesis work. We bring in special guests to talk about their publications. And then we have these exciting roundtable events, either about specific works of literature or film or about larger ideas like we have today. So we welcome you to this event and we invite you to check out Signum U um, to see what other events we have coming up. Right now, here are a few specific events that I want to invite you to, some online and some in person. Online, we have the newly started Mythgard Movie Club and the next film they'll be discussing is Alien and they're talking about that on May 3rd. So anyone is invited to join um, Kat and Curtis and other guests online to discuss Alien. And um, immediately tonight, the Mythgard Movie Club is talking about A Wrinkle in Time, which is great because that film has just been released. There's also been a forum discussion that we've been hosting about the book, Wrinkle in Time. So if any of you are fans of the book or fans or not of the film, um, then join that discussion. Now, in-person events that are coming up, we have London Moot on April 28th. That is our first regional gathering in the UK. So if you will be over that side of the pond um, in April, please consider going to London Moot. And then our big national conference, Myth Moot 5, is coming up in June. That's June 21st through 24th in Virginia. So I hope that any of you here today or who are listening to this recording can join some of these events live in person or online or at least watch them later. Of course, we have our ongoing regular series like the Silmarillion Film Project and Exploring Lord of the Rings Online, and also check out Mythgard Academy classes. Now, if you're here today or watching this on YouTube later, I would love to encourage you to make a donation to help continue this series, to help making it possible. So you can go to signumuniversity.org slash donate, and we would really appreciate that. Okay, now let me introduce our special guests. Oh, actually, before I do that, I have a question for you, for the audience. Let me give you this warm-up question, and then you can type your answers to it while I um, introduce our guests. So my question I've stolen from Signum faculty member Brenton Dickison, who is here lurking in the webinar today. The question is, are you techno-pessimistic or futuro-optimistic? So thinking about where technology is right now and the trajectories of where you see technological development in the near future or the far future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about that? So go ahead and type in your answer. Like, are you looking forward to getting the internet installed in your brain and getting extra limbs that you can add at will? Um, or are you afraid of AI taking over the world and wiping out humanity? So go ahead and type in those answers while I um, introduce our special guests. 
James Hughes is a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, which I really hope to ask him about some today. And he's also the associate provost for institutional research, assessment, and planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. So welcome very much, Dr. Hughes. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Ted Peters teaches systematic theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He co-edits the journal Theology and Science at the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences. Along with two colleagues, he's editing a new book, Religious Transhumanism and Its Critics. Soon to be published is his fiction thriller with a transhumanist plot, Cyrus 12, with Apocryphal Press, my own publisher as well. Check out his website, tedstimelytake.com. So welcome, Dr. Peters. And Yannick Imbert is professor of apologetics at Faculté Jean Calvin in France. His main interest is in the intersection of faith and society. He completed his PhD on J.R.R. Tolkien's view of imagination and has written several articles on Tolkien, including, I might add, a chapter in the book that I edited, edited wow. The Inklings and King Arthur. He has a long interest in transhumanism, particularly from a theological perspective. So welcome, Dr. Imbert. Good to be here. Um, so we've gotten some responses. We've got techno-pessimistic, a little, not optimistic, but hopeful, optimistic. Um, Richard Rowland says, speaking as someone who works in the field of technology, pretty pessimistic. Um, some say optimistic, not concerned about AI, but I do have some concerns about becoming cyborgs, but also some excitement, says Elizabeth Hart. <laughs> so we have a variety of responses, optimistic, pessimistic. Kate is all for nanobots traveling through my newly discovered um, cancer <clears throat> cells, but I don't want extra body parts. So. Um, the first question I'm going to ask each of you gentlemen is basically where do these responses fit into transhumanism? So give me just like a one sentence. What is transhumanism? Uh, James, I'll start with you. What is transhumanism? Well, I think the short answer is that it's ancient religious aspirations for greater wisdom, longevity, health, and superpowers of various kinds that used to be accomplished or attempted to be accomplished through magical means that have been translated through the enlightenment. And now um, we aspire to accomplish these things through technological and scientific means. Okay. All right. Very clearly said. Thank you. Uh, Yannick, how would you define it? I would say somewhat the same direction. Transhumanism would be the, uh, the position, the cultural philosophy that, um, puts a moral obligation on all of us, or most of us, uh, to do everything in our power, including mostly te technological means, uh, to improve and enhance uh, the human life. Okay, improve and enhance human life, excellent. Uh, Ted, would you agree, or do you have a different definition? I am a future old optimist. <clears throat> Let me get that one in. Uh, transhumanism is a movement uh, involving primarily uh, technophiles, people who are just fascinated uh, with computers and uh, artificial intelligence and uh, things of that particular nature. And in its most imaginary and extreme form, it sees the end of Homo sapiens as we currently have them and looks forward to a future species that would replace us in the evolutionary story 
And uh, this species, post-human species, would be super intelligent. And it could either be embodied in the case of radical life extension or disembodied in the case of cybernetic immortality. So the transhumanists are a group of people with really vivid imaginations. <laughs> okay, well said. Oh, there's so many directions we could go um, from that. Any Anything any of you want to respond to and what the others said before I ask for some more clarifications? Well, just I agree that it's it's certainly a contemporary movement. I, the reason I started in history is that I think for this discussion, it's important to acknowledge the kind of proto-transhumanist themes in ancient religious and mythological and literary form. But yes, now it's become a movement of sorts. Well, I would like to concur with Dr. Hughes that transhumanism <clears throat> does have um, a response to the human sensibility for perfection, for transformation, and things like this, which is distinctively religious. But most transhumanists don't think of themselves that way. They think of themselves as replacing religion with uh, science. So it takes uh, a professor kind of like what we are to analyze transhumanism and to see that religious dimensions because they don't necessarily advertise that they're religious. Agreed. Right, right. And I do want to go down that, that road a little bit, but first let's get a couple other terms defined and a couple of other distinctions made. So we have that all laid out there. So Ted, you use another related word, post-humanism. So what is post-humanism and is it the same as transhumanism or is it something different but complementary? Post-humanism is simply the product that transhumanism, uh, transhumanists would like to uh, deliver. So they belong together. Okay. I I would amend that just to say that the use of the term post-humanism in the humanities is um, is pretty different from transhumanism and often directly counterposed to transhumanism in that right. it's transhumanism you can think of as the, the enlightenment on steroids and post-humanism is often a critique of the enlightenment. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, as I tend to use it in literary studies, transhumanism is human enhancement so it's medical, it's biological, technological, and physiological, but post-humanism is a philosophical concept. It's an idea of trying to displace humanity from the subjective position, trying to see outside of looking from just an anthropocentric um, worldview, oh, imagining, that's right. yeah, imagining a planet without or after human species or imagining from the perspective of non-human species um, trying to imagine works of art that that displace our subjective position. Yeah. And just to plug, I, I edit the Journal of Post-Human Studies, and in that journal, we're attempting to bring those two discourse communities together, and it's um, frothy, hmm. shall we say. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, and then the other distinction that you made, Ted, was sort of two different ways of imagining this enhanced human future. Um, the first one was like through biological enhancement, right? And the other was through cybernetic, what were you talking about, like whole brain upload or just talk about those two distinctions a little bit? Uh, yes, one of uh, the themes uh, amongst transhumanists is to overcome death. And uh, there are two basic paths you can take. One, it would be biological enhancement through genetic engineering, trying to prevent cells from becoming senescent. And that's called radical life extension. 
And uh, if we accomplish that, you could live to be a thousand years old, unless, of course, you get hit by a bus. Uh, and it's basically uh, indefinite continuance of life as we know it uh, in a very healthy uh, body. Um, the other option, the Ray Kurzweil option, is um, whole brain emulation, lifting the pattern that is your mind up into a computer, uh, getting rid of uh, the biology entirely, and uh, you and my mind could then meet in the cloud, and as long as the computer stays plugged in and charged, then we're going to live immortally. So we're sitting here like in our virtual space right now, you know, we're on two different continents, vastly different time zones right here. We're kind of all meeting in the cloud right now and we're all calmly discussing this as academics. But let me just be human here for a second and be like, isn't this crazy? I mean, is, isn't this nuts what we're talking about? So two different directions we could go. Um, let's go the sort of ethical direction first and then the pragmatic one so the first is it would it be good would it be desirable and then secondly would it be possible and then yeah we have to get to literature after that so um don't worry audience we know it's supposed to be about literature and feel free to send in your questions but so first of all like the ethical question would we why would we want radical life extension why should we want to live for a thousand years or why should we want to upload um you know our consciousness code to the cloud uh yannick you want to come in on that first Sure. Um, well, I'm um, I'm a bit of two minds on uh, on both questions, uh, the ethical and pragmatic. Um, yeah, on the face of it, you know, there's ethically, you can't really be against improving human life. You know, so the first answer, even from me, from like a, a theological Christian perspective, is like, well, the furthering of Christian life is nothing against which say. Um, I believe we, we could or should go. Um, that, of course, means that ethics is always qualified by a, a whole lot of other notions, including, well, including one that uh, transhumanism tackles frequently, not always, but frequently, and that puts uh, transhumanism in the philosophical area as well, is well, whether or not there's something of a human nature that we can improve or not. And if there's a human nature, can you improve everything or is there like some things you you can't improve because by definition by definition it is not improvable so i'm of two minds uh on the face of it yes no problem no improve human life um and then there's a more like philosophical approach where i would say like i say my students well Let's take a step back, slow down, and let's think about it. Like, what are the other like questions we need to bring in the the conversation? So you're of two minds. Which of the two would you upload to the cloud? <laughs> uh, you don't want to upload any of my brain to the cloud. We'll be in big trouble. Okay, uh, James, do you want to speak to the ethical question? Like, would it be it would it be a, an absolute good to live for a thousand years? You know, would we want that? Well, uh, with the caveat that I am a transhumanist, I'm former director of the World Transhumanist Association. Um, I think that the problem that a lot of people have when uh, anticipating these kinds of technologies is absolutizing them. And in absolutizing, they then assume that anyone who pursues those goals would, would pursue them to the exclusion of other virtues. 
I think, you know, the long religious philosophical message is you can't, you know, uh, starve your soul in the pursuit of any goal. Um, so, but is it um, intrinsically uh, immoral or uh, um, intrinsically bad for your soul to want to live an extra year? No. Well, then why living an extra year from 200 to 201, why is that different from 80 to 81? Um, you know, the oldest uh, text that we know of, literary text, I think, is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it's about a guy searching for immortality. He eventually concludes, he finds a technological uh, solution to immortality, but he eventually concludes that it's better to build cities to help everyone um, instead of become immortal himself. And that's often the message about immortalism in fiction is that anybody who pursues immortalism is bad, but that's because it's such an absolute goal. If we were just talking about, you know, medicine and religious people have often opposed both medical science and medicine itself, organ transplantation, et cetera, et cetera, on the grounds that it was unnatural or hubristic or whatever. But once it, it gets here, then it becomes naturalized and the religious people embrace it as in fact, a religious obligation to provide to everybody. And I think that that's probably what's gonna happen with all the technologies we're talking about. So would it perhaps be a better intermediate ethical goal to work on the increase of life quality rather than life quantity? And if the life quantity is a handy fringe benefit, then so much the better? Right, the stage we're at right now is that many uh, biogerontologists are talking about the creation of drugs and therapies which could extend healthy longevity for a decade, two decades. And I don't think anybody's really gonna stand up and say, no, that's a bad idea. Well. Once you get those extra couple decades, then we might have therapies that do it a couple more decades. And I don't think anybody's gonna to object to that. And so, yeah, if you say, don't, don't you fear the prospect of having to live forever? Then people say, oh my God, you know, it's the, the what we call the Tythonus fallacy. Tythonus was a guy who was made immortal by the gods in Greek mythology, but he forgot to ask for eternal health and he turned into a cricket. Um, and uh, yeah, we don't want the Tythonus fallacy. We want healthy longevity. Right. Uh, Ted, would you come in on the other side of the distinction from the ethical point of view? So what about the uh, whole brain emulation? Could you talk about the ethics of uploading our consciousness to the cloud, assuming it were possible? <laughs> the <clears throat> assumption that uh, transhumanists or whole brain uh, emulationists make um, really uh, cannot be substantiated, and that is that the mind is is basically a pattern, and that if we can extract the pattern uh, from brain activity, that we can do the uploading. This is an untested assumption. I think it's probably weak. So you have a realism problem. Nevertheless, <clears throat> we do have a responsibility of speculating about what might happen, and um, one thing you can predict is that if you if your mind serena is now in the cloud you're going to lose track of time <laughs> you and i because we're biological um we uh we really understand segments of time we set goals we try to fulfill them and all of that kind of thing and <clears throat> that's going to kind of like slip away and I think in a short period of time, you and my consciousness is going to have a different structure and a different function and things like that. So it's um, hard to know what moral thinking will be like in a disembodied uh, state because you don't have that sense of 
uh, temporal urgency. Of course, your ethical question might be, should we do it if we could do it? And um, I, uh, let me just say, I'm going to waffle on that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, of course we would if we could. That's what humans do. Well, we certainly, somebody would volunteer to do the experiment. I'm uh, quite confident of that. And maybe the good idea would be to have a few people do it and then call back to us and tell us, hey, this was a great idea. No, this was a terrible idea. Uh, I think I'd kind of like to wait and hear those testimonies. Mm-hmm. But then there's always the difficulty of the such technology falling into the wrong hands, being well, weaponized at worst. Or I think at that's a major, major issue, and I don't know if Yannick would uh, agree with me or not, but um, the, uh, the reason I'm a futural optimist is that I do think that technology can do wonderful things in terms of improving the human situation. But curiously, Every advance in technology is a new advance opportunity for sin. Uh, the uh, not just the advertising, but the sleazy gimmicks uh, to steal our money day after day on cell phones and on uh, my computer, etc. So, um, if a transhumanist were to uh, announce a real achievement in the advance of technology, this is going to be some cruddy uh, person who's going to use it as a, in, in terms of a scheme to milk you and me for money. And uh, we just have to uh, anticipate that. That's one aspect of, uh, of our human nature, nature, I think. The technology is not going to fix. Yeah, um, our attendee who previously mentioned that he works in the tech field sent in a concern, basically just what you're saying. Like we've got all these best and brightest minds in the field of technology and what are they spending their time and energy and money working on how to get us the best cell phone advertising in order to target us you know to to get our money so he's not particularly optimistic about would we do the greatest things with these technologies were they available uh yannick did you want to come in on that no, I mean, I very, very much agree with what Ted said about the uh, the, the latest part. Um, for me, the um, for me, it's never been the uh, the technology we use that are necessarily the problem. Um, and I'm I'm very much with um, a French thinker. You everybody might know Jacques Ellul, who wrote a lot on technology, but he was not against technology himself. Uh, but it the uh, the environment, the global uh, atmosphere that certain technology can create uh that that's the problem uh and i very much agree in, in a way for me as a christian theologian it's it's not first about the uh, the technology um it's first about how how i as a human being limited uh i will affect the world around me through the issues of technology um and you know I, i'm not using technology the way i should and so I have negative impact. Uh, and it's not the place of technology itself. It's, it's a thing we use. Even in AI, it's, uh, well, an AI at first, unless it becomes really conscious and that leads us to like a whole field of like sci-fi writing or transhumanist writing too. Um, so it's never the technology itself, I think. It would be too easy to, uh, to retreat behind the technology and say, well, that's a technology that we created. Um, in the image of Genesis, you know, when uh, Adam always said like, well, that's not me, that's the wife God created. Never my fault. I'm not sure that's the best attitude we can have. 
Mm -hmm. So the technology is a morally neutral tool, at least until after the singularity, and then it's a whole new. <laughs> yeah, that's a different question. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, why don't we go more explicitly into literature now? So James, you've already brought us there. You've already mentioned a few works, Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, lurking behind our conversation has been Gulliver's Travels and the Strolldbrugs, who also, you know, are the immortals who forgot to ask for health as well, and they're just shriveled down to this little dusty creatures who are miserable and wish to die and cannot. Um, so two questions. One is, what do we mean when we say transhumanism in literature? Does it have to be intentional? Is the author, you know, writing with these technologies in mind or can we legitimately So, um, James, do you want to tackle that question then? What do we mean, transhumanism in literature? Sure. Well, I think there is a big decision to be made there about whether you restrict it to technological means or not. But, um, you know, we mentioned Tythonus. Uh, there are immortals uh, in Taoism, and that's a, one of the few examples of religion that actually valorizes the pursuit of immortalism. Uh, King Midas is a super being. He, he happens to be punished for it. Uh, but the Buddha is also a super being who accomplishes his superpowers through entirely natural means. Um, there are animal-human hybrids. Uh, Ganesha has uh, got an elephant head. Uh, he was, it was put on him by his dad after he felt remorse for cutting off his head. Um, so I don't know, you know, I think that these are all proto uh, inklings of the way that we, and that there is a thread in, in the way that culture um, treats these kinds of creatures throughout history. But once you get to the Enlightenment, and especially to the 20th century, you begin to have these explicitly technological visions of transformed humans and uh, mythological creatures that we could also put in the po post-human uh, category. There's been a lot of discussion in um, sociology of culture about what it means when zombies versus vampires are more popular. The zombie being kind of a, a trope that represents mass uprisings and anxiety about communism or race, uh, and the vampires being more of a trope that represents elite anxieties about uh, conspiratorial blood-sucking elites. So um, I, would, I, I would include those in the discussion of contemporary literary or cultural transhumanism, but um, uh, specifically, we're talking about, you know, uh, tropes about transformed humans who take a pill, uh, genetic therapy, get bit by a spider, you know, whatever, and become superhuman. Right. All right. Uh, Richard Rowland wants to know, by your earlier broader definition, would the Numenorians be transhumanists? They certainly have extended life, right? Remind me, the Numenorians? Yeah. Oh, the, in, the uh, in the Norse mythology. Right. Uh, well, well in Tolkien's extended mythology. Oh, Tolkien's mythology, right. Well, yeah. I think it's interesting that we have a Tolkien scholar online because Tolkien, one of the interesting things I think here is that um, Tolkien was explicitly kind of a Luddite. Um, and, his, and a lot of the Lord of the Rings narrative, which I loved as a kid, uh, as an adult, I appreciate that he really was a pastoralist. He was really anxious about industrialization. The ring represents the unbridled power of technology and so forth. And so um, there's a lot of those kinds of transhumanist anxieties reflected there. Mm -hmm. uh, Yannick, what about the Numenorians? And then you can go to the bigger question. Well, that, that's, uh, that's a whole issue about uh, transhumanism in, uh, in literature or fiction. Um, 
And I wrestle with a question, you know, preparing for the uh, for this uh, for this uh, webinar. I'm I don't want to say I'm of two minds uh, because I don't want to play that card all the time. Um, but really, I'm I'm never too sure. Um, I'm not sure about the uh, the this thread of transhumanism in fiction that we could see uh, throughout literary history because you can see different threads, different like uh, themes, topics that come back again and again. Uh, say the desire, the human desire to create life. Um, that's that's that seems to be a basic human desire that comes back again and again. Uh, that goes hand in hand with a desire for eternity. And I believe in eternal life. It's a whole different one, but see, it's I think it's a human, basic human like given almost to desire that. Does that mean it's always transhumanism? Well, no. I mean, as James said. It, it, it's a very modern project uh, based on first like advancements of science. If I might add, though, I, from from my reading, and I don't know all of transhumanism because it's great diversity, um, but it seems to me that again and again comes back in transhumanism this philosophical standpoint where there is no fixed human nature, and that's precisely why we can really transcend it and go to a posthuman. And that's a very specific philosophical position that is, well, also rather modern, or I won't say postmodern, but say uh, there's the, there's a lot of talk about Nietzsche. Is he the, the great the great grandfather of transhumanism on that issue or not? Um, and I'm not too sure. Jane probably has a, a better like grasp of that uh, whole question, uh, or Ted as well. So for me, it's um, where what's the first transhumanist? novel or fiction i don't know uh but probably not where we think it is because there's too many philosophical um given that need to be brought together to have a real transhumanist fiction frankenstein mary shelley i don't think it's a transhumanist novel um maybe the 50s or 60s um so that's where that's where i am right now well so, just on the question of human nature briefly i think it's interesting that you're perception is that transhumanists don't believe in a fixed human nature and Ted's is that we believe in too fixed a human nature we believe or we misattribute where that fixity is yeah. I think trans I've written about transhumanism and personal identity I have a more of a Buddhist take on personal identity that it doesn't exist mm -hmm. in the first place but a lot of transhumanists haven't figured that out yet they're looking to how they can survive for a billion years in multiple different reincarnations of bodies they haven't figured out what the self is yet Mm -hmm. So we have partly a question of if we define it too broadly, then everything is transhumanist literature because everything is about how can we improve our conditions and how can we survive and live longer. But then we, if we start to define it more narrowly, then we get differing definitions. We get definitions that have to do with human nature or that have to do with specific technologies. So one question might be, is the introduction of digital technologies, is that a dividing line? I have to bring this up in my classroom a lot because students will often want to get in debates over technology in the classroom. And some of them will say, you know, we don't want technology in the classrooms. And I'm like, what, you don't want clothes? You, know, you, don't, want, you don't want pencils? You don't want buildings? Um, these are all technologies. And as we discuss it, we discover that in their minds, although they haven't articulated it before, the difference is digital technologies and maybe even specifically internet-enabled technologies, one or two of those related technologies. So that goes to what you were discussing before, Ted, um, 
because that all relies on digitization, right? If we're talking about whole brain emulation or whatever, that relies on digitization. So is that a useful distinction in discussing transhumanist literature? Well, I suspect, <clears throat> Serena, that this con these conversations you're having with your students, students might be over being personal rather than impersonal. And um, obviously they're used to having pencils and clothes and they have personal relationships and there could be a fear uh, that things would get impersonal in the classroom. I, I, I used to tell my students, you know, close your computers. And if you're on your computer, then, you know, and I'd set some rules. And one time I was just pondering out loud about some Greek word and some guy raises his hand. I just Googled it and I found this is the etymology and I'm thinking, hey, computers are a good idea in class. Um, I think it's the personal versus impersonal uh, strings that get twanged. But I, I do want to mention a book. Um, you all uh, are uh, dealing with the subtleties and reading between the lines. I've got a book uh, that there are no lines to read between. Dan Brown's book on origin. And it's really a transhumanist book because one of the key characters, the antagonist, is a transhumanist. And here's the theme of the book, Origin by Dan Brown now. I believe, says uh, Mr. Kirsch, we are on the brink of an enlightened new era, a world where religion finally departs and science reigns. So Mr. Brown, the author, thinks there's a war going on between science and religion without having noticed that almost all religious people absolutely love science. And uh, yet somehow or other, he wants to get rid of religion, replace it with science. What kind of science is he gonna replace it with? Well transhumanism that's that's kind of uh, the uh, the thesis of the book uh, so there's nothing subtle subtle here um, but it's really a piece of propaganda for getting rid of the um, religion that is archaic and we should evolve beyond it and then we should embrace this post-human um, existence and uh, it's a very popular book I just wonder if very many of the readers really like uh, what Dan Brown's message is. Uh, if I could just jump in, I, well, I agree that Dan Brown is a propagandist, if that was your point. Um, I think that there's a periodicity to the technological manifestations um, of transhumanism and fiction in that after Darwin, the principal manifestations were evolutionary or biological. And you could think of H.G. Wells' time machine about Eloys and Warlocks, where he was Kind of riffing on what would happen if the classes evolved into two different species. Um, Brave New World, where he's um, kind of riffing, about, he was actually in dialogue with early 20th century uh, transhumanists in England, uh, Julius Huxley, his brother, uh, Aldous Huxley's uh, brother, Julius Huxley, was the founder of the term transhumanism. And Brave New World was an explicit critique of some of the early transhumanist themes in the 20th century in England. Um, Olaf Stapleton is actually the, one of the first writers who has a relatively positive, although it's just it's just kind of like a, a travelogue of the future history of all the different kinds of humans that could evolve in the future. We become giant brains, we become giant blobs of, of protoplasm and things like that. But it's not judgmental. It doesn't say that any of it's bad. It's just a natural process for humanity to evolve. 
But once you get past World War II, then you have these giant computers and people start to think about, well, is, and, and you have that post-humanism in the sense of the disembodied self and the self being able to transmit and be recorded and things like that. And so then the idea of digital immortality becomes more common, although you still see many other kinds of human transformation of, uh, in transhumanist fiction. Yeah. Oh, well said. Um, Richard asked a question that goes right into what you were discussing right there with the periodicity of the earlier time. He says, what about the eugenics movements in literature of the 19th and 20th centuries? Are those arguably transhumanist efforts to improve human life? We don't like to own them anymore, but they certainly had those aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Kate asked a really or made a really good comment that guts the heart of, I think, what you were saying, Ted. She says the interesting problem for her is how do we become trans or post-human if we don't yet fully understand or agree on what it means to be human, which I think is where the value of literature lies. Um, one uh, aspect of defining the human is actually a moral one, and that is our belief in the modern world that each individual human person has dignity to be treated as a moral end and not as a means to something else. And what happens, say, when you're on the brink of genocide or you know, these, these crimes against humanity, uh, is that the victims of the genocide be, get defined as something less than human you know there in the in the case of the uh, rwanda genocide the victims were described as vermin not human so human is as much a, a moral category uh, as it is biological or um, uh, even historical um, the transhumanists for the most part um, don't do enough philosophy to kind of like give me an answer to what it means to be human that I can have some confidence in. The risk of post-human in the transhumanist sense uh, is um, what's going to happen to this doctrine of human dignity? Where's it going to go? I don't know. Maybe James wants to speak to that. Uh, and Maybe you've got a good answer, James, but it's an answer that I keep looking for and haven't found my satisfaction yet. Well, just to agree with you that um, there's no discussion of defining the human that I've ever found compelling. Uh, you know, everybody outside of Africa is interbred with Neanderthals to a greater or lesser extent. So does that make us more or less human? We don't know if we, if humans started 50,000 years ago or 2 million years ago. We don't know what kind of technological change to human species would cause us all to say, oh, now I'm not a human anymore. Uh, does it, you know, if you have a, an artificial pacemaker implanted, are you not human anymore? If I wear glasses, am I not human anymore? If I have, if I'm a conjoined twin, am I not human anymore? So I think, you know, if we resolve this back to the kinds of uh, spiritual or virtuous characteristics of uh, being a thinking, sentient being that we appreciate, there are very few aspirations to human enhancement that want to diminish any of those. People may assume that becoming immortal would cause you to become a heartless uh, technocrat of some kind, but I don't see any reason why it necessarily does. So I think that that's, that's really where the nub of the argument is. Uh, um, I've just remembered the question that someone sent me in, and it was right to that point. It was a Zeno's paradox, or even more accurately, a, a, a ship of Theseus question. So it was, okay, if I wear glasses, I'm a person with glasses. If I get a robotic arm, I'm a person with a robotic arm. If I get, if I keep the robotic arm and I get a chip implanted, now I'm a human with a robotic arm and a chip implanted. 
But if this process just goes on, where is that dividing line? When do I move over from man to machine, as it were? Agreed. Yannick, any thoughts on that? Uh, it's a good. It's a good question. I mean, it goes back to what uh, Ted and James were discussing as the real like, crux of the matter. It's yeah. when we say I am a human being with glasses, a chip, a robotic arm. Well, you know, the, the question is, what are we asking? Are we asking when I'm not human anymore, or are we asking when am I a human becoming a machine? And just always go back to the question of what it means to be human. Um, and, you know, that's the question we wrestle with. And I don't think it's the question is really when we become a machine, but what um, what are we expecting from being human? And, well, of course, the ethical question, to which point can we go? Um, I don't have a really, I don't have really a, a, an answer for a, for uh, our uh, attendee here, I, I wrestle with that. I um, I have students, you know, so in a theoretical setting, and um, uh, I ask them, what, what do you do? Imagine we are 70 years from now, and um, you know, I, I train like say pastors, ministers, and say, well, um, imaginative theology. Uh, suddenly, someone comes with uh, no human parts, just an android, cyborg, and um, just ask to be uh, baptized. So, uh, do you ask like how many percent of um, technology he has? Uh, do you check if just to make sure he has a human brain, at least a human brain? You know, it, it's difficult for, for me. The the whole question is about human nature, and um, it's difficult even for the theologian because even the Bible itself doesn't tell you what it totally means. Um, it's not in the brain. Um, it's not in the heart. It's much more complicated than that. Um, so I don't think this issue, even for me, is easily solved. And I, I would be cautious uh, with someone, transhumanist, uh, atheist, Christian, who'd have the, uh, the quick and uh, absolute answer. I think it's a question we need to wrestle with. At the so minimum. Even, as, even as a Christian theologian, the answer is not as simple as it's someone who has a soul because that's not something that you can either measure or quantify or identify either? Yeah, no, I don't think, I mean, the soul is not a material thing. So you can't have someone and say, well, oh, he has a soul because it's here or here. Ah, that was a, that was a big debate in the, uh, at the end of the medieval, medieval age. Uh, the Valero controversy was about whether, well, Indians would uh, add a soul or not. And uh, well, of course, one of the Jesuit theologians answered that they have a soul, so they can't be slaves. But then the Africans um, get slavery instead of the Indians. So the answer was not really complete. Um, but I, I don't believe the answer is as clear and, uh, and easy. I believe that the issue of the soul, for me as a Christian theologian, is, um, is crucial. Uh, but what is it? Uh, can an android? Can a machine uh, have a soul? Right. Uh, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I have my ideas, but... I just want to give a shout out to Ted's article, The Soul of Transhumanism, which I think is the best thing I've ever read on this. He contrasts yeah, half a dozen Christian theological views of the soul with mm -hmm. what transhumanists apparently believe and shows the contrasts and, and similarities in some cases. 
Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. And again, from a literary post-humanist point of view, if we're looking um, from the perspective of speciesism, if we're looking at do other animal species have, for instance, language, do they have something that perhaps could be identified as consciousness, which we also have not satisfactorily defined, um, well then, if you brought in a Christian theological perspective into that post-humanist point of view, would you say that other species also have souls? And that would further complicate um, these definitions you're trying to make. Um, let me just call on the audience for a moment. We're going to start moving into the last sort of quarter of the discussion. So everyone who's attending here, I would love to hear more from you right now. If you've got a question, if you have a concern with something that was said or something resonated, type that up now. But also give us some more literary examples, audience. Um, send in the title of a book, a story, a poem, or even a film or some other cultural product that you think might be transhumanist. And we'll, we'll end this discussion sort of more textually grounded than we've been, since that's what we like to do here at Signum. Um, <laughs> and while those questions are coming in, um, have I missed sort of a big concept that any of you gentlemen wanted to bring in, Ted? Uh, I, I would like to uh, add add one, uh, and that is uh, what the theologian calls eschatology, or um, the utopian uh, product. If I can go back to Dan Brown's origin book, and uh, we'll see an example of it here, will technology save us from everything? So here's a Here's a speech, the future where environmental technologies provided billions of people with drinking water, nutritious food, and access to clean energy. Look at the wonderful things technology is going to do for us. A future where diseases like uh, Edmund's, uh, he's the antagonist, Edmund's cancer were eradicated thanks to genomic medicine. A future where the awesome power of the internet was finally harnessed for education, even uh, in the most remote corners of the world. A future where assembly line robotics would free workers from mind-numbing jobs so that they could pursue more revealing fields that would open up in areas not yet imagined. And here's the last sentence. And above all, a future in which breakthrough technologies began creating such an abundance of humankind's critical resources that warring over them would no longer be necessary. So technology and transhumanism is going to put an end to war, as well as uh, provide us with another foodie. I, I mean, I love this vision, but uh, as Yannick um, has suggested, uh, technology all by itself can't get us there. Uh, something about human nature that's always going to give us a flat tire just before we get uh, to that uh, destination. And uh, if I would ask anything of my transhumanist friends, I'd say, reflect on this a little bit more. Well, I would just point out that that passage could have been written by a French revolutionary. Those are aspirations of the enlightenment for the last 200 years, no matter what they call themselves. And everyone in cultural history is very cognizant of the fact that enlightenment visions of a utopian future are basically transmutations of eschatolo Christian eschatological visions. And, and I think we should embrace that continuity and recognize it, and it has important implications. But I don't think it necessarily 
uh, casts any aspersion on the aspiration for a better society. I mean, since human beings were able to imagine things being different, they have imagined better health, longer lives, no war, no hunger. And those are the aspirations that drive human progress. So I don't see why it's of any consequence or concern that transhumanists are saying, hey, why don't we do this with reason and science instead of magic and prayer? Yeah, you started out this webinar, James, with mentioning uh, magic, and I'm I'm studying magic in my dissertation. I'm looking at playwrights who were practicing magicians in the 20th century in the high occult secret societies, and I'm looking at how the rituals they were practicing influenced their playwriting. Um, but to connect it back to the transhumanist question, I've been trying to work on redefining magic because most theorists just talk about it as a desire to control nature um, or a desire to control the self. And when you get into the, the later, you know, the high ritual societies, it's much more about transmuting the self rather than something external. But I don't really like focusing on control so much. I see this continuity between magical writings and science fiction writings and transhumanist literature because they're all attempts to realize the contents of the imagination. They're all desiring to say, I can imagine this. I want to be able to do this by whatever means, magical means or scientific means or technological means. So I think that's a continuity that we can see in these literatures across time. Agreed. So we've got some questions and comments coming in. Um, Kate Neville, of course, brings up Blade Runner, and Richard also brings up Blade Runner and Battlestar Galactica and Data and Star Trek Next Generation as all examples of machines trying to become more human. Um, I'm watching Amazon's Humans right now, which is pretty good, and it does a really good job of exploring all of the implications of post-singularity, you know, fully humanoid androids with real consciousness and feelings. Uh, so Richard asks, what are some other examples of popular literature that you feel is wrestling with the transhumanist question? Do you have other examples that come to mind? Well, there are whole genres of science fiction that are pretty good at it. Um, you know, uh, I like Cory Doctorow's stuff. Um, um, yeah, there's all kinds of folks in science fiction. Um, Reynolds, uh, his uh, his posthumanist future, he tries to grapple explicitly with some of the political questions about how you have a democracy in a future with radically different enabled beings. And I think that's one of the most pressing questions. Yeah. Well, I think in movies, we've got her and we've got transcendence. In the case of her, it's how personal uh, can um, life in a machine be? In the case of transcendence, it's megalomania. Once, <laughs> once you get this technological power, um, you can what destroy and and take advantage of and rule over uh, perennial human human uh, problem. Yeah, uh, Kate Neville mentions she's reading. Accelerando, Accelerando, which is yeah. about uploaded humanity. Um, isn't Altered Carbon also another yes. Richard project? Morgan's Altered Carbon, which was just adapted uh, by Netflix. And unfortunately, they, Netflix made the decision to change the political narrative from uh, one that embraced an immortalist future to one that was opposed to an immortalist future, which was unfortunate. Um, but uh, to your, one of your previous questions, I think there are lots of examples of the Pinocchio syndrome of robots wanting to be real boys. Um, and the most chilling and iconic episodes are when they say, 
screw that. It's better to be a robot. And mm. you see that in Battlestar Galactica, the new Battlestar Galactica, where some of the contemporary robots or the, at the, the robots in that, that narrative say, it's better to be what I am. You know, I, I don't want to be human. And that's where really where you push the humanist buttons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's that line in Amazon's Humans as well. There's one where the robot says to the mother, she can take better care of the children. And then another scene where one says, why would I want to be human? You're all cruel to each other. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth has a really good question I think goes back to the overlaps between religion and magic. She says, what about the horcruxes in Harry Potter that you can take the soul and put it into an object? Is that a transhumanist literary move? I personally would say no, but <laughs> it's only me. Uh, well, it, it depends if magic is a technology or not. I don't think you can really associate too rapidly um, magic and technology. It's, I mean, again, there's there's a there's a strong link. Uh, maybe not the only link, but there's a strong link, link between technology and transhumanism and science. Is magic a form of science? Well, maybe you can say magic is a form of science. I think it's a bit, it's a stretch of the imagination, precisely. Uh, and I think you know that you need to keep distinctions. So I would say no, um, because of this non-scientific, like vital center that there is, uh, or that should be to, in order to be um, to be transhumanist. I mean, Harry Potter is clearly an anti-transhumanist text in that regard, because both the Philosopher's Stone as a use, uh, to be used for immortality is seen as a bad thing to do. And uh, Voldemort's uh, aspirations for immortality uh, not only involves murder, but he, in fact, is the embodiment of human evil. So, you know, that's an example. There are very few examples in literature fiction of immortal people aspiring to immortality who are even morally neutral, much less good. Right. Yeah, and the ending of Harry Potter, contra the film adaptations, is a Prospero move. It's a, you know, in so many fathoms I will drown my book when Harry um, decides not to join the Hallows together and decides to turn away from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. <laughs> I have a sort of a meta-political question about all of this. Um, just kind of observing our round table here today. Now, maybe this is too small of a sample size, but here the four of us are talking. Um, we have our three round table guests here, three white Americans and Europeans, right? And then myself as host, just one white woman. Is this uh, where, what is transhumanism globally? Is this a quote unquote Western phenomenon? Um, are we just a bad sampling that we don't represent the diversity of the types of scholars who are working on this question? Um, or does this have something to do with developed, quote unquote, countries that have the leisure to pursue these ideas? Just talk to me about that as we close. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's probably also due to the, uh, the historical origin of transhumanism, uh, which has in a large part to deal with um, American science fiction, or English speaking, but a lot of American science fiction. And also the 50s, the 60s, the 70s uh, in the US, and in particular, maybe on the West Coast of the, of the US, if you want to be even more specific. Um, that being said, I think there's a slowly, uh, the transhumanist um, like worldview is 
is going beyond this small circle. Um, you can find it in Buddhism. Um, I have a political science professor uh, when I was doing my studies in political science, who's a Buddhist, and um, he has um, he has no problem with the joining or fusing uh, transhumanism and Buddhism. Um, some people see um, some transhumanist theme in uh, Octavia Butler's writing, uh, which probably, arguably, she's one of the greatest um, African-American sci-fi writer or fantasy writer. Um, so I, I think it's slowly going beyond this small circle, uh, but this small circle is not, um, it's not ethnic first, it's, it's an historical data. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate mentioned Octavia Butler in a comment almost the exact same moment oh, you said right. her name. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ted, any thoughts on that question? When I hang around uh, with uh, transhumanists, and they do invite me to their barbecues, um, I uh, did notice, especially uh, as the movement was getting going, uh, they tended to be uh, young white males uh, who absolutely loved computers and uh, had great imaginations, etc. And I don't think there's um, uh, anything wrong with that. I have met uh, East Asians uh, very interested, but they also happen to be very computer uh, savvy. So I have been asking um, African-Americans and in some cases uh, women, um, are your sensibilities attuned to the kind of mindset uh, of uh, transhumanism? Um, if transhumanism were to elect a president and uh, national policies would be formulated accordingly, who would get left out? Who would get marginalized? Uh, are you worried that if we <clears throat> have uh, uploads into computers and are living in the cloud that the race issue will go away or uh, will some new form of uh, d discrimination and injustice arise um let me just say i'm in the job right now of soliciting perspectives on that uh just to try to uh get a grip not that the transhumanists have sought to be elitist elitist in any ideological way but de facto, they've got to be elitists because their highest value is intelligence, even super intelligence. And, uh, you know, that was a big value that drove the eugenics movement a century ago. So mm -hmm. um, these things just need to be thought about, the multiple perspectives, I think. Yeah. James? Well, I think insofar as transhumanism is the manifestation of the enlightenment applied to technology in modern technology, then you have to kind of map this onto the world and say that everyone and recognize that everyone from India to Japan basically is far more techno optimistic than people in Europe and the West because of the Christian and um, monotheistic heritage. Um, if you ask Indians, Chinese, Koreans, do you think it's okay to genetically engineer your kids? You know, it's 80% say yes. Um, you don't get that in the West. Um, and so what they really need from the Enlightenment is some of the political elements. They need the individual rights and the democracy and those other elements. They've already got the technophilia and the utopian technological aspirations down. But as a consequence, they don't see much use for transhumanism as it's currently constituted. Um, it, as to race, um, I have a lot of hopes for Afrofuturism. Uh, the Black Panther movie is now the top grossing movie in the world. Uh, Black Panther himself is a, a, a post-human of sorts, and uh, Wakanda is a kind of uh, techno 
utopia of sorts. Um, and if this becomes a more prevalent meme in the black community, I could see a new form of Afrofuturist transhumanism emerging. We do have an enormous gender problem. Uh, transhumanists tend to be about three quarters male. I think that's principally because all ideological movements are about three quarters male yeah. because men want to measure their members in ideological disputation and women don't feel that same compulsion. Women get attracted to movements that are actually about accomplishing something real in the world for real people. And so I think as transhumanism um, becomes more uh, about uh, the fights for stem cell research or the fights for actually curing Alzheimer's or whatever it is, and then it probably won't be called transhumanism anymore, but as it becomes something real, more women will be attracted. Well said, and thank you for bringing in Black Panther, because that's where I wanted to close. And Kate had just typed that she thinks that Black Panther's sister, Shuri, may inspire a new generation of minorities. And the beautiful, beautiful movie that, um, yes, has a transhumanist vision, an Afrofuturist vision, but a, just a really beautiful human vision, I think, of a lot of these things united, of technology and gender equality and um, social justice really united in just a beautiful and lively and well-made movie. So if any of you haven't seen it yet, go and see it. Well, thank you very, very much to all of you special guests for being here. Thank you to our live attendees and to everyone who watches this later. Um, if anyone wants to continue the conversation on social media, that would be great. We could set up a discussion forum. You can always put comments on the YouTube videos or anywhere else. So follow us on your favorite social media platforms. Um, and thank you again very much, James, Ted, Yannick. We really appreciate the time that you've given us. See you in the cloud. All right. See you in the cloud. All right. Goodbye, all. Bye. 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 If you enjoyed this seminar, please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!